Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I received a one-line email recently. They just said, why is the show called Soho Bites? So presumably it's the bites part that this person doesn't understand. The Soho bit's quite obvious and I'm afraid the answer is... I don't know. I can't remember. It just, it just is. Sorry. But anyway, here we are, episode 39 of this show with the mysterious name. And it seems almost inconceivable that even though Soho is one of the centres of London's gay scene, and has been for several decades, we haven't yet done an episode with gay Soho as a theme. Obviously, we've had many guests on the show who happen to be gay. Some renowned and notorious homosexuals of Grace's podcast. But as an actual theme, it's something we haven't done, so now we're putting that right. In the film chat section of the show, in the second half, I'll be talking to Professor Glyn Davis of St Andrews University about Nighthawks, a 1978 realist drama that follows the day-to-day life of Jim, a geography teacher by day and a trawler of London's gay bars by night. It sounds salacious, but as you will find out, it is anything but. And the release of Nighthawks in 1978 came three years before the first reported case of HIV in the UK and, of course, the subsequent AIDS pandemic that caused so much misery and fear for the next couple of decades. More than 40 years on, thanks to some amazing advances in drug therapies, HIV is no longer the terrifying threat that it once was, but it certainly hasn't gone away, neither for those who live with the memory of those dark days nor for those who are unfortunate enough to acquire the virus. So, to begin the show today, I'll be talking to Will Hampson. Will has been living with HIV since roughly the start of a different pandemic, the recent COVID pandemic, and he then became the subject of some anonymous vitriolic trolling from a colleague at the Soho Bar at which he worked. He wrote all about this in his book, The Lost Boys of Soho, and I'll be talking to him in a couple of ticks. I well remember the day the first COVID lockdown was introduced. I was at Ronnie Scott's, don't you know, recording an interview for Soho Bites with a jazz singer called David Chewan. 
I then stayed on to record some of his gig, but dramatically it was abandoned halfway through as the lockdown suddenly came into force and we were all sent home. You can hear all that happening in episode 11, which you'll be able to find at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Will Hampson also has reason to remember that day well. Just around the corner from Ronnie Scott's at the 56 Dean Street Sexual Health Clinic, he received his diagnosis of HIV and began the course of medication that he'll be on for the rest of his life. Sometime later, as the first lockdown began to wind down and Soho, along with the rest of the country, began to reopen, Will started working at a well-known Soho gay bar. His diagnosis was still quite recent and having a normal job again helped him get back on his feet, but his experiences weren't entirely positive. He made friends at the bar, but the behaviour of some of Will's colleagues was nasty and quite extreme. Will was by no means a writer, but ended up writing a book, The Lost Boys of Soho, which documents his daily experiences of working at the bar, both good and bad. In the book, by the way, he doesn't name the bar and he gives all of his colleagues pseudonyms, so we will do the same in this podcast. I met up with Will a couple of weeks ago and it was like we were still in lockdown. We met in an outdoor location, the good old churchyard of St Anne's on Wardour Street, which is why you may well discern some background noise. Many people, I said to author Will Hampson, have unusual and perhaps unpleasant experiences in their lives, but they don't all write a book about it. What made you, somebody who had never written before, decide to pick up a pen? And before I let Will answer that question, I just want to warn you that the following conversation includes sexual language and some descriptions of violence that some listeners may find upsetting. And if you're listening with kids around, you might want to hit the pause button and come back later. Neverland is home to lost boys like me And lost boys like me are free I documented it on the Terence Higgins um, forum, which is specifically for people living with HIV, and it was just a series of posts of life working in a in a London gay bar. And um, by the end of it, when I I'd come to leave the bar, uh, just a lot of people, especially uh, service providers, just said on hearing the story that I should perhaps you know document it and, and write a book. Is it the posts basically lifted and put straight into the book, or have you adapted them? retrospectively it is um pretty much the posts are in the book i perhaps just expanded a little bit more but yeah a lot of the the forum readers who are hiv positive as well you know predominantly a heterosexual crowd just said that you know it was really fascinating it was like a soap proper and so what what year did you get your diagnosis it was in march 2020 I think it was the it was the first day that lockdown was legal. I remember walking through Trafalgar Square with my medication from 5016th Street, um, and they'd give me six months worth because they didn't know when I could return because of lockdown. Yeah, I remember that day, actually. It was a really nice sunny day, actually, yeah. because the, the light was bouncing off of Trafalgar Square. It was completely empty. I was walking through. My backpack was rattling with these medication and there was just um there was just two of those police officers in the navy blue uniforms with the, the, the with the guns you know and i just kind of thought you know i hope i don't get questions as to why i'm out because i would have just declared i think because it was so raw then because it was only the day before i'd got the diagnosis was you know that you know i, I get told off for this all the time but you know using using this word but well, i've got aids you know yeah. stay away i'll lick you yeah exactly <laughs> you know um, that that is kind of my 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 sense of humor as well you know that a lot of people are quite sensitive about the language that's used and I've been told off quite a few times for 
you know, just like you're saying, I'm infected with HIV. I've been told off endless times by charities and other individuals. For the word infected? No, yeah. It's, okay. It's acquired. I acquired okay. HIV. I mean, one of the somebody sent me about two weeks ago um, from a charity sent me a language guide in PDF format because she said that the language that I'd used in the book referring to my HIV, which I just casually and quite jovially just you know refer to as I've got the AIDS. Well, I used to work for um, a blind charity. And I started on my first day, was told, um, you say visually impaired, you don't say the visually impaired, because it's not, you know, it's not one big group, all these different things. And, um, and the first phone call I took, a, a guy phoned up and said, oh, I'm interested in taking on your service. I said, okay. And I went through a list of questions. I said, are you visually impaired yourself? He went, oh, I'm as blind as a bat. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, what must, it's not for me to say, I can't say to him, ooh, you really shouldn't say that, <laughs> sir, you know. But this is the thing I find, you know, with, with being a gay man living with HIV is that, you know, you start putting these barriers up about, you know, the language that you can and can't use is you end up just closing down a lot of conversations because people are too scared to yeah. to approach you, yeah, yeah. you know. Do you mind me asking um, how you, I mean, obviously we know how HIV is acquired, but do you remember asking how you acquired it in your case? Because, I mean, you weren't getting much action, were you, let's face no. it. <laughs> I was a dried up old prune, um, <laughs> as my colleagues kept telling me, you know, and I'd not done anything for years. I was so kind of invested in my work um, and I had this new project as an operations manager for a brand new hotel. So I kind of was, you know, really into that. And all my friends just kept saying, Will, you just need to get laid. You know, they knew that wasn't my bag. I mean, I did it when I was younger, but I'd kind of moved on quite a lot. But, you know, they could say, oh, you just need to get laid. You need to have some fun. I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe they're right. So I went onto one of the hookup sites and spoke to a guy for about half an hour. I mean, I think the alarm bells should have started ringing because there was no profile picture. I asked for a photograph of his face, even though it wasn't his face that I'd be looking at. And um, he sent me a grainy picture. He said that he had a, a girlfriend. He wasn't out. And um, I invited him around. And the minute I invited him around and gave, gave him my address, I just regretted it and just thought, no, I just, I'm, I'm not going to go through with this. I'm just, I'm just going to cancel. The doorbell rang. And um, I thought, no, I'll just ignore it. And I thought, well, no, I'm grown up. I'll just answer the door and just politely, you know, just say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not into it. That turned into, I thought, well, I'll be super polite and invite him in for a drink as a kind of, you know. <laughs> it's in hospitality. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, <laughs> he, he came in and I just said, look, it's not, you know, I don't really want to go through with it. But, you know, do you want to take a drink? And then all I remember was just this fist come flying towards my face. And then the next thing, I just woke up and he was on top of me. And it turns out that I was on the floor. He pulled off my joggers and um, it had penetrated me. He was complaining that he couldn't maintain his erection. And there was just blood all over the, the floor. So it caused quite serious injury. And then he just he just took off. And that was that. I just kind of, I suppose like you see on TVs and dramas, you know, you're kind of just going on yourself. And yeah. And you, had, you didn't at any point think of on the police or anything like that or no it was i think i'm kind of old school in my ways of you know just never really kind of complaining and i suppose as well i just had that fear of just not being believed you know i mean kind of especially get that sense of as well that because i've gone on one of these hookup parts i suppose you get that sense of you know if you did call the police that they would just i mean it's pretty unfair for me to say it, but just somehow feel that you know you perhaps deserved what what you got so um, so this was what, March 2020, you said? Um, and then 
and then so the pubs were shut. Then you weren't. Were you? Were you worked anywhere else at that point? No, well, I was. I was an operations manager for a hotel in Oldgate. Um, got the diagnosis and just just knew that I just needed to just come out of work to be able to process uh, what was going on. So I just 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 resigned. Um, so when did you take the job at this unnamed pub in the the one in the book? It was just as lockdown had finished. So had reopened. April or May 2021 and obviously not obliged to but you didn't tell your new employer about your status no nobody I'd come to terms of it within within three days myself so I just didn't didn't, didn't see it as being relevant or, or necessary really you know so so then the crux of the book is this sort of quite nasty incident Could you talk about that because that's um, that's quite unpleasant it was just it just came out of the out of the blue really you know I got these whatsapp messages from an unknown number um, you know that basically just said that they were aware of my status you know we, I know you've got AIDS you know I kind of just I can't say I, I didn't laugh because I didn't find it hysterical but I wasn't really kind of bothered I kind of was more bothered about how they knew my status because it wasn't something that as I say I hadn't discussed uh, you know I hadn't been taking medication at work so I kind of was really just found it really bizarre how, how they did know because they were on the right tracks you know I didn't have AIDS I had HIV and there is a difference Do we know how this person discovered your status and could you also explain how you using your detective skills discovered who the person was still to this day i don't know how they found out i mean i've got just one suspicion which my theory is that he was in and out of the sti clinic so often where i get my my treatment that he possibly has become friends with somebody there and perhaps maybe looked up, tried to maybe get some dirt on me of, you know, kind of what STIs I've been in for, and that's, that's HIV is the only thing that I have, have been in for. Could he have seen you in there maybe, or...? No, because there was never really anybody in there, you know, it was during lockdown. I think there was a couple of times I was in the waiting room completely by myself, there was nobody else there, there was nobody else, there was nobody around Soho, you know, Soho was completely dead. So no, there was, I can't see how he would have... And how did you discover, because the person that you ultimately discovered was the culprit, as I was saying before, I made these notes of, of, about the characters, and my initial notes about that character were 20 skanky govern. Completely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I think even he used to joke that, you know, that um, 5016 Street, the STI clinic, should have a revolving door for him. You know, he was always in there. He used to boast about having the, all these different STIs he's had, didn't he? It was one of the first conversations he had with me when I first met him. He came up to me and just said, hi, I'm Kenzie and I'm a complete slut looking for a rich sugar daddy. You know, and then he just reeled off all these STIs. And it literally was just like a run through, like I've had chlamydia twice, I've had gonorrhea four times. Um, he had a rare breed of crabs. I'm not sure how he how he worked out. He had a, br- a rare breed of crabs. Edible? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> but these crabs apparently were carrying another STI that he'd got. And he was just really proud and was, was bursting of it. I mean, it was, I don't know, maybe it's a generational thing, but it's just something that I would have kept, you know, just to myself, you know. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. You've uh, given the name now. So how did you discover... This guy, skanky govern, 20-year-old, was the person who sent you this malicious text or these malicious texts? I can't claim to be the Jessica Fletcher of Soho, but it literally was just Google. So I went to Google, typed in the, the mobile phone number, um, got up several pages of results. But I wasn't invested to kind of really go through these results because it was just pages of phone numbers of phone numbers. And then when the messages continued to come, I just thought, okay, this is really getting 
not serious in the sense it was bothering me, but I just thought, actually, I just want to know who, who this is. And it could have only been a work colleague because he was talking about some of the videos that I was posting in the work WhatsApp group chat. So it had to be somebody from work. So I was taking myself off to Brighton and just out of boredom on the train, I was, again, Googling the number and taking the time just to go through some of the web page results. And it just came up to like an archive page of a games console where he'd input his phone number to ask a question about a basketball game. And I just got a chill when I saw his username in this forum that he was in, this games forum, was his first name, dot his surname. Right. I just was like, bang. Got what a giveaway. Yeah. What yeah. an idiot. Mm-hmm. The title of the book is The Lost Boys of Soho. And who are the Lost Boys and why are you calling them the Lost Boys? There's a song by a singer, a Canadian singer called Ruth B., um, called Lost Boy. And I just was listening to it. And just the lyrics, I just was able to relate. It was all about Peter Pan and Neverland and being lost and not having a home. And I just, I mean, I'm not a lyricist. You know, I'm not great with the English language. But to me, it was just very, it just triggered with each kind of line and, and, and verse. I was able to relate to one of the, the boys that I was working with. They were essentially lost. You know, there's a lot of drugs that were going on there. A lot of them didn't know what they were doing with their life. I mean, you know, I think with bar work, it's, it's very easy, casual work. And I mean, for some people, you can make a career out of it, and that's great. But um, see, a lot of them just seemed to be... I mean, there was a couple of students, but a lot of them seemed to be, I suppose, my age and a little bit younger that, you know, should be by now having a really good career, but were working in a bar. So, yeah, they just seemed to be in life in general, just lost. And I kind of wondered if I was a lost boy too, you know? And at the other end of the age spectrum, in a way, is this, this cohort of, of customers who lived through the 80s and were quite bitter Obviously, they've had a traumatic experiences losing friends and whatever. But you talk about them being quite bitter. And then some of them not getting vaccinated against COVID because of a mistrust of the, of the system. Can you talk about that? Because for me, that's the most horrifying thing in the book. Yeah, it was just a lot of conversations around COVID-19 in comparison to the AIDS pandemic and the government's handling of both pandemics. I kind of thought it was a little bit unfair. So I kind of wasn't sure where they were coming from. But yeah, what I kind of found really dangerous was that they were all declaring that they weren't taking the vaccine not because they had any kind of mistrust with the 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 pharmaceutical side or the you know the kind of efficacy of the the vaccine what i found fascinating with that was i think if there had been a vaccine for hiv aids back then they'd have probably all jumped at the chance to to take it we had customers that were coming into the to the pub and declaring that they tested positive for covid19 but we're refusing to isolate. We had all these old boys in there that had declared that they weren't having the vaccine. And then you've got customers that are saying that they've got COVID, COVID-19. I mean, I was worried for myself as well, you know, and I was fully vaccinated at the time, but you had these old boys that were divvering around, you know, they were in their 70s and 80s, you know. Oh, that, really? That old? Yeah, okay. yeah. I thought you meant my age. No, some like... of them I had to help down the stairs, right. you know. <laughs> And also the other, the other problem that we had as well was is that, you know, kind of the LGBT acronym keeps getting extended and extended. And we had kind of confrontations between some of the customers that were perhaps not regulars or not being into um, this pub often, kind of getting into confrontations with each other. And we'd be called to go and kind of intervene and, you know, play a referee. 
And a lot of times it would just turn out where you'd have heterosexual guys that would declare that they've got a girlfriend or a wife, but they identified as queer, you know? So you had kind of the guys that were there for cruising, kind of hitting on guys that were queer because they looked gay or queer, but were just completely heterosexual. And it kind of was really fascinating to see that kind of, you know, somebody who identifies as queer isn't essentially gay. <laughs> you know, even now I just can't get my head around it. I'm probably not explaining it very well because it's just, it's just, uh, it just plays with. Is with that a generational thing? Do you think? I mean, were they were they generally younger those pe- those sort of people? Because I can't. Uh, it's like they've adopted the sort of you know the peripheral things about gay culture mm. and gay uh, gay aesthetic, mm. but actually not. I mean, isn't that just like? A cultural appropriation wearing like a white person wearing dreads exactly and whatever and, and that's what i mean i just i just it, it it was predominantly young guys and it would literally be like you know some young guy would come up and he would have like a really cool quirky haircut nail varnish on you know lots of silver jewelry maybe kind of effeminate kind of blouse kind of you know shirt and you know maybe 1990s you know baggy black formal trousers and he would come up and go that guy's keeps touching my bum or you know, I've just been into toilets and I've just seen this, or this guy's just said this to me, you know, and I'd be like, well, that's what this bar's... You know where you are. Yeah, that's what this bar's <laughs> known for. And they'd be like, well, no, I'm not gay. And I'd be like, what? You know? <laughs> be like, well, no, just because I identify as queer doesn't mean that I'm gay. And I'd be just like... And then sometimes, as I say, if you had some of the regulars that were there that were kind of, you know, getting into these confrontations, even their mind would be just blown. And I used to just turn around to some of the younger lost boys and just go, can you explain this to me, please? Because... I don't get it. I find that a bit confusing too. But thank you all the same to Will Hampson for sharing those experiences with us here on Soho Bites. During the editing of this interview, I made the decision to take out most of the very medical aspects of the discussion around HIV, the technical stuff to do with viral loads and CD4 counts and different types of medication, PrEP and PEP, etc, etc. But this information is all out there, readily available if you want to look into it. In the show notes for this episode, I've posted links to two of the organisations that we'll refer to, 56 Dean Street and the Terence Higgins Trust, and they're both excellent sources of information and support. You'll also find in those show notes details about Will and his social media. He does like an Instagram reel, I have to say. And of course, you'll also find a link from where you can buy his book, The Lost Boys of Soho. You shouldn't need me to tell you this after all this time, but just in case you're very forgetful, and you don't know where to find the show notes, I'll tell you one more time. It's all at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Backstreet's Disco, my name's Nicky Price, and if you've got any requests, please do come up and ask. All you have to do is come up and say, Nicky, I'd like a request. 
Full disclosure, Nighthawks, the 1978 film directed by Ron Peck that we're talking about today, is possibly not technically a Soho film as such in that it's difficult to categorically state that any scenes were shot in the area. Some of it was definitely shot very close by St Martin's Lane, Hoburn, Charing Cross Road, but within the sacred borders of Soho itself, I'm not 100% sure. However, there are many sequences set in nightclubs and they are packed with boogieing extras. These extras were recruited by members of the production team who visited every gay club in London looking for men to take part in the filming and many of them were found in the bars and clubs of Soho. I like to think they brought a little bit of Soho with them to the film set, wherever that may have been. And when I say many sequences in Nighthawks were set in nightclubs, what I mean by that is many sequences in Nighthawks are set in nightclubs and the film follows a very particular rhythm as the central character, Jim, played by Ken Robertson, goes to clubs and bars seemingly almost nightly looking to meet men. More often than not, he does end up with somebody to spend the night with and the following morning, after a cup of tea and a munch on some toast, they'll go their separate ways with a vague plan to meet later in the week. Jim will then go off to the London Comprehensive School where he teaches geography to classes of rowdy kids. Despite Jim's best efforts, who seems to be looking for something lasting, these embryonic relationships tend to fizzle out after maybe just one repeat visit and the pattern begins all over again. There's another slice of toast over left, will it? No, thank you. Well, I bet we can soon. Can I give you a lift? No, it's okay. I've got a tube pass. Well, I can give you a lift to the tube. Hmm. It's only around the corner. Where exactly have you got to get to? Hoban. Well, I can give you a lift there if you like. Yeah? Yeah. I've got plenty of time. Well, it makes a really nice change to go by car to work. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it does. Do you always go by tube? Yeah, I even travel on the tube every day, during the day. Why don't you get yourself a bike? A bike in London? You've got to be joking. Well, Can you drop me just here, where the scaffolding is? All oh, right. Please. Yeah. What are you doing at the weekend? I'm working. Oh. I'd really like to see you again. What about during the week? Yeah, you could um, give me a ring. During his working hours, Jim develops a friendship with a colleague, a young supply teacher called Judy, played by Rachel Nicholas James. This relationship is the central one of the film and is the only one that runs throughout. Unlike the several shorter ones that Jim has with men, as he constantly, restlessly searches for some sort of meaningful connection in his life. There are several scenes involving Judy and Jim spending time together outside of work, which serve to break up the otherwise relentless rhythm of the other side of Jim's life. Hey, what are you drinking? Martini. Oh, I like that sometimes. Didn't think of it today, though. I've been brought up on beer <laughs> ever since I started. All those years as a student, I suppose. Mm. <coughs> Where were you at college? Lincoln. Yeah? Where were you? Southampton. Oh, yeah. I met Stephen there, my husband. Did you? Yeah, because he was there same time as me and then I went teaching and he did an extra year. What's he doing Because I've done there? a year in a sixth form college, did you know that? No. Oh, yeah, well in Southampton I was a year in sixth form college. 
What does he do now? Mm. Oh, he's in a polytechnic, teaching others to teach. Oh. As you can hear from the two clips I've played there, the style of Nighthawks is startlingly downbeat with mumbled, realistic, improvised dialogue that overlaps and repeats and sometimes just peters out. It can be a difficult watch sometimes and some of the awkward, banal exchanges between Jim and the men he meets and with Judy can be toe-curling, but something about it, perhaps the sheer mundanity of it all, is a bit hypnotising and by my third time watching the film, I find myself riveted. And that realism isn't just found in the dialogue. We're in the very unglamorous world of grimy late 70s London here. Everything just seems a bit down at heel and dilapidated. If I could show you the sandwiches that Jim and Judy are eating in that pub scene, you'd get the picture. There's not a mashed avocado or a slice of toasted sourdough in sight. These are limp, unappealing processed cheese sandwiches on soggy looking sunblessed bread just the sort of thing that needs washing down with a warm pint of double diamond. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, this film definitely is not. The film explicitly seeks to capture the character of London at this time through Jim, who has a weekend hobby of photographing the disappearing ex-industrial landscapes of the East End and then cataloguing the images. It's not entirely clear why he does this. It could be for school, or perhaps it's another slightly obsessive behaviour of his, but it gives us a great glimpse of Shadwell, Limehouse and Wapping before the 80s yuppies moved in and colonised those areas. And there are two key scenes in Nighthawks which I discussed with my guest, Glyn Davis, in the upcoming conversation, so I won't go into too much detail here, but I will play a short excerpt of one of them, just for a taster. The first is in one of the nightclub scenes and consists of an extreme close-up of Jim's face which is held for a really long time and the second takes place towards the end of the film in Jim's classroom. Will you keep quiet? Do you have any questions? Put your hands up. Please. Oh, yes, Christopher. Is it true that you're bent? <laughs> Do you mind repeating the question, Christopher? Is it true that you're a queer? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you look it, there's been a rumour going around the school that you're a queer. Come on, admit it. Yes, it's true. <laughs> All right, now you know. Get on with the work. My guest, Glyn Davis, is a professor of film studies at the University of St Andrews. His particular interests lie in queer visual culture and experimental and avant-garde cinema, so he's just about the perfect person to talk to about this film, especially as he's done extensive research into Nighthawks, which included accessing the archive of the film's director, Ron Peck, which is held at the Bishopsgate Institute. Ron sadly died just a few months ago in November 2022. In preparation for this interview, I read an essay that Glynn wrote about the film, which is fascinating and full of detail about its genesis, and I learnt a lot. One thing I didn't learn, though, was whether or not Glynn actually likes Nighthawks. He clearly finds it interesting and admires it as a film, but that can be a very different thing indeed. We met online because he lives a very, very long way away, so there is the occasional glitch in the audio, and I asked him, without revealing the spoiler of whether or not he actually likes Nighthawks, to tell me about the very early days of the film and how the project came about. 
As I understand it, it had an extremely long gestation period. The history of the film itself is really extraordinary. It now gets recognised, obviously, as a, as a classic of British queer cinema, but it's really useful to look back at this point in the late 1970s when the film was coming together and just how long it took them to get it made. The gay rights movement in the UK had been above ground for some time when the film was conceived. There were very visible gay rights movements in the UK. The Gay Liberation Front had been very active and noisy in the early 70s. And other groups uh, were kind of making their, making themselves known at this time. In, in those groups, there were a number of people who were interested in forms of representation and trying to improve the representation of LGBTQ people in cinema. This isn't to say, of course, that there hadn't previously been representations of queer people in British cinema. I mean, we could do a whole episode here just on the history of the carry-on movies, right? And actually what the carry-on... <laughs> yeah. They're not that positive, though, are they, those representations? They're not positive, though, really, no. I mean, well, well you know, but there's, there's something to be said, isn't there, for the contributions of people like Kenneth Williams to the history of queer representation? And Charles Hawtrey. And Charles Hawtrey, yeah. who was a really fascinating example of somebody who whose screen persona was always heavily coded, but for those in the know, was very overt. I think it's worth saying, though, that there were other films in the 1970s that preceded the production of Nighthawks that had engaged with queer lives and had depicted them on screen. There were a couple, in fact, from 1971. One was John Schlesinger's uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which depicts bisexuality in really interesting ways. And the other is a film called Villain, which is a, a London-based, low-budget gangster film, which looks in interesting ways at the connections between a queer underworld and a gangster underworld, if you like. But no, to come back to your question, yes, this was a film that took a a long time to make. It was one that was in gestation for several years. The first steps towards it were being made in 1975, 76, but the film only finally had its first screening in 1978. So it took uh, it took a good two to three years to get the funding in place and the people in place. I mean, partly the problem there was the British film industry and the fact that the 1970s was a was not a great decade for British film production. It was a period of decline rather than productivity. Funds dried up. Big companies like Rank and AMI were uh, diminishing in status. Even something like the BFI's production board would only fund one film a year. And uh, Ron Peck did apply to the BFI production board for funding, but was unsuccessful. What did happen at that particular point in film history is that you see the rise of an interesting new entrepreneurial breed of producer. People like David Putnam, Don Boyd, people who were very well connected, very savvy, recognized that in order to get films made, they were going to have to work in somewhat rogue, eclectic, um, and innovative ways. And Don Boyd actually became a really key figure in the making of Nighthawks. He connected up with Ron Peck and helped him to get funding and uh, supported him in, in making contacts at, at key points. But these individuals recognized that a future source of funding for films was going to be uh, European co-funding. They would often put together packages of funding that would involve European money. These investors aren't, aren't expecting a return on their money, are they? I mean, surely it was never a, a commercial proposition, Nighthawks. No, Ron's background was much more experimental and art house in its focus. He was a member of a group called Four Corners that had formed when he was at London Film School. And in fact, all of the members of Four Corners ended up working on Nighthawks as well. But they were left-leaning in their politics. They were collaborative and uh, kind of communal in terms of their practices. They worked slowly. <laughs> they worked 
piecemeal. They changed roles. They would debate and negotiate every single decision that they were making about their projects. No, I mean, Nighthawks was being pitched as a documentary inflected social realist project, but it was certainly never going to be a big commercial kind of breakthrough. This came out, a film largely set in nightclubs. It came out the same year as Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> is it is is it the British version of Saturday Night Fever? Dowdy, cheap, grim version of it, you know. That's a really interesting comparison. There was a lot more money behind Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. <laughs> and the new- but I mean, there are similarities in a way in that they're both kind of like marginalised groups. Saturday Night Fever is about, you know, kind of working class kind of, a guy who could kind of end up in crime or, do you know what I mean? It's a, They're not massively dissimilar. I mean, they are, obviously, in some ways. Well, there isn't a sell-through, very successful soundtrack album, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that music from Hart Nighthawks is in my head. (laughs) The soundtrack does get stuck there. That kind of electronic score is repetitive and quite haunting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's an interesting comparison, but I think they're very different kinds of movies. The aim of Nighthawks, as as the project evolved, was very much to try to address negative representations of LGBTQ people. The film wanted to attempt to put on display a much broader cross-section of this particular community. Obviously, through the editing process, that gets narrowed down. It becomes much narrower, but the intention was there. It's often referred to as an as an important film, an interesting film and all that kind of stuff. It's not the first, as you said earlier on, it's not the first gay film or one that has a positive message. But what, what makes it so revered? Is it because it's made by a group of gay men about themselves as opposed to something like Killing a Sister George or whatever, you know? I don't know if it's necessarily revered. I think it's respected. Yeah, okay, that's a better word, yeah. It occupies a really interesting space between the more avant-garde experiments of someone like Derek Jarman, who was making films uh, around the same time, but was making much more abstract or experimental films like Jubilee, which came out in 1977, Sebastian, which came out the year before, 76, playing to very much to the kind of underground slash art scene across the country. And then the more mainstream titles, which were pushing the boundaries a little bit in terms of respectability, films like Sunday Bloody Sunday. This is neither of those, right? It's in places formally quite experimental, but on the whole, a relatively narrative piece of filmmaking. But it's also a film that has been made by a community for that community. They would have been delighted if the film had made a lot of money and had got out to a much broader public. But essentially, the filmmakers felt a responsibility to that community to depict them appropriately, successfully on film in a way that that worked. From what I've seen from the documentary, Street Rot Naked, it has some deleted scenes and it does seem that there was more variety in the interactions that Jim has and a bit more kind of fun and the ones he kept in were all a bit kind of, oh, so I go to work on Mondays and, uh, you know, I, I had to get the tube. And <laughs> it just seems very, very dull. And if they're talk, talking about representing, you know, representing an underrepresented minority, it all just seems a bit glum. I wonder why they opted, when they did have options of making it a bit more varied, why did they, why did Ron and Paul go for these kind of quite dull ones? They made some strange choices, I thought. 
That's a, that's very interesting. I mean, obviously, the first cut of the film was very long. Uh, they they did a first four hour cut and then knocked it down to about two and a half hours. But what is interesting in terms of the stuff that gets cut out is there are very particular political decisions made about what to foreground and what to remove. There's not much drag. There's not much campiness, actually. And it's almost as though that decision has been made. But Ron addresses that in Strip Jack Naked and kind of um, feels bad about it and recognizes that removing that part of, of queer culture was to kind of almost do a disservice to the broader spectrum that he wanted to be in the film in the first place. And so he is apologetic about it almost, that that material isn't in there. But no, it's true. There are some decisions made about what gets included. Some of the conversations that were cut are more interesting than the ones that make it in. One thing that that does do that is really interesting in relation to the cinematic representation of queer characters in the 1970s is that it shows that gay people can be boring as well. Yeah, absolutely. Don't expect us all to be radical and fabulous all the time. We are just as dull as everybody else can be. Yeah, well, geography teachers almost like the cliched epitome of a dull person, isn't it? I do wonder sometimes about the general tone of it and the kind of slightly pessimistic feel to it. You do get these people, particularly sort of religious people, who say the homosexual can never find true happiness because, you know, they're always searching for that, that elusive thing. But and they, of course, what they really want is a good woman and eight <laughs> kids, you know. And I, I do wonder if that sort of glumness plays into that a bit. Yeah. Richard Dyer, in his discussion of the film, situates it in relation to other films that are produced for the community, by the community. Films that maybe are trying to recruit people to a particular cause or are advertising the activities of a particular group. So he writes about, for instance, there's a short film called Come Together, which is made by the Gay Liberation Front, which is an, an amazing document of them and their public activities. But it kind of captures what they were doing as a group and it promotes them, if you like. This film is evidently coming from a similar community mindset but because it's reaching a broader audience and is getting these screenings at the Odeon in Nottingham, for instance, then it's got the potential to reach a different demographic who might read it in particular ways. Maybe it would reinforce some of their ideas about gay life being depressing and not focusing on, on goals that are needed and respected by the straight world. He is a geography teacher, Jim, the main character, and he takes these pictures a lot of bits of Wapping and Shadwell, places like that, that are no longer there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it could be because he's a geography teacher, and that's what he talks about in his lessons, but I, you get the impression that it's not. What, what do you think the significance is of that? And I wonder if some of that was cut out as well, if it's sort of referred to a little bit at the start, and then he doesn't, doesn't come back to it again. I think it's a really fascinating point. It's a, it's a lovely part of the film. Yeah, very much so, yeah. It's a really rich part of it, because it, it does that lovely thing that films from the archive can do for us, which is it can bring us into contact with lost buildings, lost geographies that we... Uh, we didn't know existed or that we might remember and it's amazing to revisit them. It's only very briefly touched on and throughout the run of the film it just seems to be uh, a behaviour that he is doing in his spare time, going to take those pictures. The scenes are intercut with the narrative in ways that just add to the kind of repetitive components that keep looping through. It certainly provides the film with a with a realist dimension. It grounds it very much in the geography of the city. Makes us very aware of where this was shot. I think certainly there is that connection to his role as a geography teacher and the possibility that he might do that. But then it also does just seem to be another repetitive element of the lifestyle that he's leading. The way in which Ken Robertson plays that character, we don't really see him get 
really heated until that moment when he confronts the school kids in the classroom. So there's a certain calm to a lot of the film and its rhythms, which make it kind of soothing, but also potentially repetitive, a bit mundane. He has a row with Judy as well at one point. Yes, he does. That's right. Which is quite nice in a way, because it's that feels like a real moment of emotion from him and everything else feels quite repressed. Yeah. The relationship between Jim and Judy is very much the core of the film. One of the reasons for that, obviously, is that Ron Peck was heavily influenced by the films of Nicholas Ray. The original working title for Nighthawks was Blind Run, which at one point was the working title for Rebel Without a Cause. Nicholas Ray's probably best known movie. And the lead characters of Jim and Judy are named after the characters played by Natalie Wood and James Dean. So it's a it's a very oblique little nod. You need to know that that's what he's doing. But Ron Peck's love of Nicholas Ray films was substantial. It's interesting that he does have this, because he, he, he's very cine literate, and there's lots of references to lots of films in in your essay about him, in other things I've read, um, I've seen talks that he's done where he's talked about influences. I, I can't really see those influences in the film, unless, like I say, it's little Easter eggs like the um, Rebel Without Cause thing. And it's this sort of cine-literateness. Does it manifest itself in any other ways in the film? I think that the influence of the various different directors and artists that he's influenced by, it tends to be more formal than anything else. It's the shape that the film takes. It's the way in which he'll record particular things. Uh, I mean, the the nod to Rebel Without a Cause is about as explicit as it gets, but actually the other elements will be relatively minor. I mean, two of the characters obviously talk about films by Ken Loach. There's a very brief conversation with them where they're talking about screening Ken Loach films for the kids at the school. But the rest of the references tend to be just more stylistic, that he has been influenced by the look of a particular film or the style of somebody else. So there's a, obviously there's a, that long motorway driving sequence where you can feel the influence of film noir, right? That's the most kind of noirish sequence that you've got this kind of focus on the darkness and the stripe down the middle of the road. But the other references tend to be a little bit more oblique. In this process at the beginning where he was contacting people about funding and that kind of thing, one of the people I was very surprised to read about was Michael Powell. Yeah. Could you tell me about what, what his involvement was? I know it's quite small, but it's very interesting because, because he's Michael Powell. And what did, what did he think of the, the project? Michael Powell's involvement is, it's genuinely lovely. Like, it's a really lovely part of the history here. One thing that Ron did with the people that he was working with uh, was that they put together a, kind of a funding pack in 1976 to send out to people to say, this is the film that we're making, would you be interested in investing? And they got the addresses of all the people that they sent it to from who's who, because of course, <laughs> you know, people's addresses were wide, widely available at that point in uh, British history. And it went to the great and the good of the British and European art scene. And it's the list of people that it went to is quite gobsmacking now to look back on. Loads of them didn't respond, of course, but the ones who did often responded very generously or supportively and did interesting, made interesting comments. So one of the people that responded was Michael Powell. He initially responded just with a little postcard written on both sides in this beautiful blue pen handwriting in which he says, this is interesting, but why is your film so glum? If you put the script together, please do send me a copy. I'd be interested in seeing it. 
Ron sent a copy of the finished script to him to read through, and Powell sent a much longer uh, missive back going through the script and identifying various things that could help. And the key difference that Michael Powell made to Nighthawks is that he tightened up the narrative structure. Not, you know, cut this line, do this, cut this page, but actually he just pushed Ron Peck and Paul Hallam and the other people working on the film to step a bit away from a more documentary aesthetic towards a narrative form. He basically said, narrative is not your enemy. You could tighten up this story and it would make a much more compelling case. You mentioned script there, Brilliant. which is an interesting, <laughs> interesting word to use because I've read that Ron said they were doing rewrites every morning of the script, but actually I've also read that everything's improvised, all the scenes are improvised. So what was the script? I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah. There are four different iterations of the script in the Bishopsgate archives, uh, which are of various different lengths. The first version is short, it's about 45 pages. The last one is enormous, it's about 180 pages. And it does contain dialogue. It contains quite extensive sequences that are fully scripted. The relationship of it to the finished film is really fascinating though, because it's clear that as they were working with individual actors, they would tailor material to whoever was in the scene. That script wasn't jettisoned. A lot of the material that ended up in the film is certainly there in embryo, or it's there in terms of the kind of the overarching structure or key points that want to that they want to hit. But actually the finished film certainly did involve when they when they were on set let's do it this way, let's try this, would you do this, would that work with this actor? So it's kind of midway between the two, basically. Was it a question of a bit like those programs today, like Geordie Shaw and stuff, where they say, this is what's going to happen in the scene, we start from here and we get to there, and then you fill in the gaps in between? Scripted reality shows. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is it... No, good. <laughs> I'd hate to think there was a connection between the two. No, I mean, obviously, you're just trying to get a Geordie Shaw reference in because of my Geordie background, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see the point that you're making, that actually there's a template to work from, and then the material kind of goes over the top. I would say that the distinction is that those programs purport to be reality, whereas it's clear that we're watching a fiction with, with Nighthawks. It's a, a reworking and a working through of the material based on a script. This repetitive rhythm of, of the film, nightclub, the next day, driving um, his new chap to the tube station, and then go to school and, and repeat, is broken up by certain scenes, like his scenes with Judy and, that, and his scenes photographing of the buildings and whatever. There are two, though, two key scenes that all the articles and reviews mention, which is the first one is this, Jim has just been rejected. He's tried to chat with some guy. He's clearly not interested. He goes wandering off again. And then the camera zooms in very, very slowly onto his face and holds this uncomfortable close-up for an uncomfortable amount of time. His eyes are flitting around. And that goes on for, I th yeah, I think four minutes. And the other scene is the one that's another famous scene at the end when he's got two classes of kids in one classroom because one of the teachers is off. And it's very rowdy. And one of them says, here, sir, are you bent? And then he kind of comes out to them. Are these two scenes, are they 
they feel like the the heart of the film to me for different mm-hmm. reasons. Let's talk about those scenes because I think I think they're doing very different things. The very long shot in the club, which zooms in on his eyes, is a quite spectacular moment in the film, and is often one that throws people because they've got used to the rhetoric of the film, they've got used to the way in which it's telling us the story, and then suddenly you've got this close upon Jim's eyes and it's held for a very long time. Now there are two things that this is doing, I think. One is that it is making us aware of the presence of cruising within queer culture and to get a sense of how long it takes. Cruising in a club, in a park, in any other public or social space in which such activity occurs requires a lot of time. It requires time to be committed to it, to be choosing somebody that you think is interesting, or to be looking around to see who else is looking back at you, to be pursuing the gaze of others, to try to try to lock eyes with them. And what it does is it captures that dynamic, that sense of, I need to stand here and accustom myself to this environment and also try to attract the attention of somebody else who is in this room. It's a long, slow process, and four minutes is a tiny fraction of how much time he might possibly be doing that. That in itself is an amazing insight. It's it's a revelatory moment in terms of putting on film the grammar of gay men's experience in a nightclub at that point in history. And so as a kind of documentary record of something that is still done, something that still happens, it's kind of groundbreaking. But what it also does is it ruptures the film because it's uncomfortable. So that long, slow take makes us aware that the cut has not happened. We are pulled out of the film and we are made aware of ourselves as spectators. Suddenly, all of the story elements drop back and we go, oh, I'm watching a movie and this take is really long. You do say to yourself, this is really good on for ages, this. That sudden recognition does make you go, oh, I'm watching a fiction. And it's so it's a clever device Mm. to kind of make you pop out of the film for a bit. Ron does talk, he has talked about that particular sequence and said while he was filming it, he was there behind the camera going, keep going, keep going, don't cut yet, don't cut yet, don't cut yet. And he was waiting for the moment where he thought, right, that's enough. And Jim actually finishes his drink and he he can see it's an empty glass by the end. He's still slugging away on it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that moment of standing in the bar going, I should probably get another one. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody shouted cut yet. No, exactly. But the sequence at the end, the sequence with the school kids, his coming out to the school kids, is in another realm, right? It's doing something very different. And that's based on a true story, isn't it? It is. So one of the inspirations behind the making of the film was an incident involving a school teacher in London called John Warburton, who in 1974 ran afoul of the Inner London Education Authority. Some of his school kids saw him taking part in a gay rights march in London, confronted him in the classroom about it, and he just very openly told them that he was part of this gay rights group and that they were marching, taking part in an activity to promote their political perspective. Other teachers were concerned, and he was struck off. On what grounds, though? I don't understand. Because it was a girls' school, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Uh, Inappropriate ways of talking about sexuality with children, maybe. Ron Peck got in touch with John Warburton and had a conversation with him and even at one point thought about casting him in the film, in the lead role. Uh, and he is there. He's in a couple of the nightclub scenes. You can see him in the background. So the the idea of having a school teacher being forced out of the closet by bolshy children and explicitly owning his identity was 
a really key part of the dynamic of the film as it was coming together. It's on the edge of the seat stuff, that, that scene, because it's so raw. One thing that I have seen, in, which is in the Bishopsgate archives, is letters from some of the school kids to Ron Peck, thanking him for allowing them to take part in the film and saying what a great time they had. Wow. His tank top needs to be addressed <laughs> as well. I mean, <laughs> Jim, Jim, surely not. Could you explain the meaning behind the name of the film Nighthawks? Oh, that's a, I can't believe we haven't even talked about that. So the title of the film is drawn from Edward Hopper's 1942 painting of the same title. Ron said that he liked the name Nighthawks and the painting Nighthawks because it was about, uh, just to quote his words, he said it was about essentially lonely people trying to come together and maybe succeeding for a while. Okay, so it's a big moment, so pause for a, a drum roll. Do you like the film? <laughs> you see, you, you're asking this question of somebody who is an academic, right? So we often will look for films that we think are interesting or historically rich to kind of dig into. I've seen Nighthawks a lot. I really love this movie. I think Good. this movie is, quite, is extraordinary. I'm a big fan of queer culture of the 1970s, to be honest, and what was happening during that decade. A very easy story often gets told about that decade, that it was a kind of fun decade heading towards liberation, where the gay rights movement was flourishing above ground and uh, we were heading towards um, a period of emancipation. But actually, it was a very messy decade where lots of conflicting political forces were vying with each other to try and work out what they wanted the future to be like. And I think in Nighthawks, you can, especially in its development, you get a sense of a group of people trying to work out what they want the queer future to look like. Finally, my partner watched this film with me last night uh, and she was desperate for Jim to meet the one. Towards the end of the film, he is with this guy whose name I can't remember and they do different things. They go to an art gallery. He goes out with Jim and Judy and another colleague as a group of friends and that all seems very promising. But at the end, Jim wants to go back to the old cruisy club with this guy yeah. to maybe look for somebody else. So my partner wants to know from you definitively, <laughs> does he stay with that guy or not? Will it all be happy in the end for Jim? <laughs> and the answer to your partner is, of course, if she would like Jim to be together with that partner, then Jim is together with that partner. That does actually, it actually, to be honest, Dom, that raises a really useful question, though, right? Which a really useful point in relation to the film, which is it's ambivalent. The film is ambivalent. One of the things that reviewers at the time praised the film for was its ambivalent tone and the fact that it wasn't giving us either a fake, upbeat, happy ending or leaving him in penury and misery and, uh, you know, some terrible state of affairs. It was leaving things open and recognizing his life's just going to continue. Well, we will never know if Jim finds true love because, as Glyn astutely points out, it's a fiction and Jim is not a real person. But if he was a real person, I think his two true loves are geography and bad tank tops. He just hasn't realised it yet. Many thanks to Professor Glyn Davis of St Andrews University for coming on the show. I should have noticed he's a big fan of Nighthawks and, unexpectedly, so am I. It's available to watch on the BFI player, but if you splash out on the BFI DVD, you'll also be able to see the various short films by Ron Peck and that documentary Strip Jack Naked, which is about the making of Nighthawks. 
It offers many interesting insights into the film and contains several deleted scenes. Well worth a watch. You'll find links to all of that, to info about both my guests and to various other interesting bits and bobs in the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with the show for any reason at all, you can do that on Twitter. The handle is at BiteSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And if you feel like supporting the show with your goodwill or your hard-earned spondulics, the links to do that are SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBytesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. I'll be back next month for the Big 4-0, episode 40 of Soho Bites, which is shaping up to be a very exciting episode indeed. Until then, take good care of yourselves, and bye for now. Bye.